and then jumping to verse 20, 20 to 25. And that's because the passage from verse 15 to 19 is what we looked at last week uh, concerning the, the second cleansing of the temple by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're looking at the story that surrounds that particular story, the story of the cursing of the fig tree. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, and the verses 20 to 25, reading from the English Standard Version. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. We would ask, Father, this morning that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our midst, uh, working with the Scripture, so that we can understand what is being said in the Scriptures, so that you might guard my speaking and guard our hearing, so that in the process of the preaching of the Word, your truth would not only be presented, but your spirit would cause your truth to find its home in our hearts in such a way that we would change, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would desire earnestly to be doers of the word and not simply hearers, that we would find your word to be our true food, that which sustains us every day, and that we would also discover increasingly that the calling to be a disciple is a wonderful calling and that you've enabled us by your grace to be salt and light to those around us, to this generation. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to begin this morning by thinking about something Jesus said recorded by the Apostle John, John chapter 14, uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then in verse 7, he says to his disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, the reason I want to start here this morning is I want to remind us of what is the center of the Christian faith. The central doctrine of the Christian faith, of course, is Jesus Christ. 
But the central teaching of Jesus Christ himself is that he, in his incarnation, is the true revelation of God the Father. That to know Jesus is to know the living God. And, and, and to know Jesus, and in knowing the living God, it's to see all of the character and all of the care that God has for us who have placed our faith in Jesus. This is absolutely central. You cannot separate Jesus and God at all in the sense that what we know about God is preeminently, ultimately, finally, fully revealed to us in His Son. Everyone who truly understands the Christian faith understands that Christ is the very center of the Christian faith. We know this from what Jesus says here. We know this in the prologue to the Gospel of John. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld His glory. We also see in verse 18 of that passage, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, speaking about Jesus, He has made Him known. Jesus has made God known. Now, what's the relevance to this passage that we have before us? The relevance to this passage is simply this. We're going to see what Jesus does here and what Jesus says here. Which then we ought to understand that this is what God does and this is what God says. That out of this passage we get a faithful understanding of who God is based upon who Jesus is and what Jesus says. That's what I want us to get this morning. I want us to see that Jesus Christ reveals God perfectly. And so what Jesus does and what Jesus tells us is what God does and what God tells us. If you ever want to know God more deeply... You study Jesus. Because the Word of God, leading it to Christ, leads us to all the fullness of the Godhead. Because Paul said that all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus in bodily form. The center of the Christian life, the secret of the Christian life, the wisdom of the Christian life, the stamina of the Christian life, the joy of the Christian life is all revealed in God's Son, Jesus. Now, so in this section and in this story, there are three particular lessons that Jesus reveals. These are lessons about God. What Jesus does, what Jesus says, God does, God says. And that's what I want us to see this morning. And first, in this passage, the lessons begin this way. A God who judges, going on to then a God who amazes, and then thirdly, a God who answers prayer. What Jesus does, what Jesus says, teaches us about God.
a God who judges, a God who amazes, and a God who answers prayer. So, verses 12 to 14. This is about a God who judges. This is the section where Jesus curses the fig tree. Now, we saw last week as we were talking about the cleansing of the temple that this cursing of the fig tree is a symbolic action. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets often did symbolic actions as part of their ministry of uh, both predicting the future, but also their ministry of telling Israel about their actual spiritual condition. Jesus is simply doing the same thing. Remember, Jesus is the prophet preeminent. Jesus is the prophet ultimate. And, and Jesus always acts in character with what we find presented and predicted of him in the Old Testament. And all the prophets were types of Jesus, types of Christ, types of the Messiah to come. So it's not surprising that Jesus would do an action that symbolically represents judgment because almost every prophet, in some manner or other, was a prophet of judgment against Israel a prophet of judgment against God's people, a prophet of judgment to call God's people back to repentance. And often those, those messages of judgment were done in a symbolic kind of fashion. So Jesus is simply fulfilling his calling here. But we also notice that what he does is he curses a fig tree. And why is that significant? Does Jesus have something against fig trees? No. Nor did he really have anything of a particular and personal nature against this particular fig tree. But the fig tree, in the history of Israel, was one of those emblems and symbols of both God's blessing upon Israel, but also God's judgment against Israel. Uh, for example, in terms of God's blessing upon Israel, in 1 Kings chapter 4, Verse 25, during the time of Solomon, which was a time of great prosperity under Solomon's righteous and wise reign, while he was righteous and wise, God tremendously blessed the nation. And so we read how good things were during that time. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, north to south. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So symbols of great blessing was to be able to sit under your fig tree. Now, at the same time, God was going to bring often Israel to judgment because of sin. And so the fig tree was almost always mentioned, specifically targeted, when God would use that judgment language against Israel. So Amos chapter 4, verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards. Your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So the fig tree had this, this symbolic emphasis within Israel. That's why Jesus picked the fig tree. Not why Jesus picked on the fig tree. It's why Jesus picked the fig tree. Because this was to convey the message of the coming judgment upon Israel. That's what this meant. Israel was going to be judged for her sin. Now, that's why we said last week, Mark brackets the story about the cleansing of the temple between the first part of the fig tree story and the second part of the fig tree story to make this far more clear. But the disciples 
didn't need any great explanation of all this if they had paid attention in the school of Christ to earlier lessons that Jesus had given. Because sometime much earlier, at a time when uh, a, a tower had fallen upon some Galileans and, 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 and they were um, destroyed by that. And then at a time when, when they reflected upon the fact that Pilate had mixed the blood of the Jewish offerings with the blood of the Jews themselves, some, some, you know, some awful things that had happened. And Jesus had said, repent, or likewise these things will happen to you. Pointing out that, that these, these kinds of things happening were in combination with the fact that Israel was not living as a righteous nation before God. So then Jesus tells this parable at that particular time, Luke chapter 13, verses 6 to 9, and this is what he says. A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard. Now notice, this is going to be, in their minds, reflective of Israel. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. By the way, Jesus curses this fig tree at the end of three years of ministry in Israel. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Well, what was the subsequent history in Israel with respect to Jesus and the Jews? Uh, we find that the Jews got even more vehemently against the name of Christ after the resurrection of Jesus. And the ultimate conclusion of that was the fig tree was going to be cut down. So the disciples already knew that. They already knew this story. So they had an understanding of this in terms of their culture, in terms of the teaching of Jesus. Uh, So they understood. Look, God had been a careful and patient vine dresser with respect to Israel again and again and again and again. But now this cursing of the fig tree could only mean one thing. Israel had not responded that Israel was going to be cut down because Israel had not repented. Now, what does this teach us about God? It teaches us that God is a holy God. That God is a God who will enact his judgment upon the sins of his people, upon the sins of the world. But notice, the judgment of God does not happen quickly. It never happens capriciously, but it never happens quickly. But only after God has sent messengers and ministers and ministries into the world to reveal God's abundant mercy. The truth about God which Jesus reveals is the God of rich kindness and forbearance and patience whose kindness is meant to lead sinful people to repentance. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And in Romans 2, Paul was simply pointing out to the Jews the judgment that Jesus was warning of. God was going to judge his people. 
But this truth applies to all peoples. No one ever stands, listen carefully, no one ever stands under the judgment of God except those who have hard and impenitent hearts. The God who will certainly judge is the God who first of all shows abundant mercy. This is what Jesus revealed in his own life. This is what God revealed in the scriptures. This is why God at the time of Noah gave 120 years for the people before the flood to repent. It's why God sent Israel down into Egypt to suffer for 430 years of bondage to give the Canaanite pagan nations time to repent. It's why God confined His gracious ministry first and foremost to the nation of Israel for those long hundreds and hundreds of years before He sent Christ into this world so that God might show to that nation mercy upon mercy upon mercy before His judgment would come. It's why even now, God has great mercy upon this world before His final judgment will come. Now the second lesson that we see here is a God who amazes. This is verse 20 and 21. We see this in Peter's amazement. Peter's amazed that the fig tree has withered. Now I want us to note, Peter wasn't surprised at all that Jesus cursed the fig tree. That didn't shock him. That didn't surprise him. That did not seem a strange thing to him. He's not reacting to that. Now I know there might be some uh, botanical people here who, <laughs> who don't want anything to ever injure a plant or a tree or whatever. Um, but Peter was looking at this from the standpoint of, of, of he got the message, but what amazed him, what amazed him was that the curse so completely withered the tree from the roots up. That's what amazed him, the fact that the tree was totally destroyed. He, he certainly believed that the tree was never going to produce fruit. He certainly believed that the tree, the next year, could look just like it did this year and not have any fruit. And the 50, 60, 100 years longer that the tree would live and not have any fruit. What amazed him was that the tree completely withered and Mark presents this important detail from the roots up. Now, what does Peter's amazement mean? Well, for one thing, Peter is still amazed after all of the miraculous things which he has already seen Jesus do. In other words, Peter has never gotten over never gotten used to, never gotten too familiar with, never got to expecting of Jesus such that when these things happen, when these supernatural manifestations of the divine power of the words of Christ happen, Peter is still amazed. That's significant. This is the way that each and all of us ought to be 
for the great and gracious demonstrations of the power of God. We should all be like Peter, amazed at what God does. But there should be no greater amazement in us than with regard to the greatest miraculous work that Christ does. And that greatest of miraculous work is the never-ending pardoning, the never-ending forgiveness of our sins by the power of His blood. We ought to never be anything but amazed that the power of the blood of Christ always keeps forgiving and pardoning our sin, always cleansing us from all unrighteousness, always a fountain filled with the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, always sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and stain. Always Jesus lives above for us to intercede. Always he intercedes by the power of his indestructible life. Always Jesus is our faithful high priest. Always, always. We should never lose amazement at the amazing grace of God. Finally, what we see here in verses 22 to 25 is a God who answers prayer. Now what's interesting in the story at this point is that Jesus goes in an entirely unexpected direction. We would be inclined to think that the focus of Jesus' response to Peter's amazement at the withered fig tree might be something along the lines of, yes, Peter, the tree withered completely because I want you to understand more deeply the eschatological truth that there's going to come a time, as I'm going to talk about later in just a couple of days around the temple, in which this final awful judgment is going to happen to Israel and just like this tree looks now, that's a picture of what Israel is going to look like in AD 70. But Jesus doesn't go to Israel's end times. Jesus doesn't go there. Because there's something far more significant for the disciples than knowing what the end times are going to look like. There's something far more significant with respect to our walk with God than being able to figure out what is it all going to look like when Jesus Christ returns. And that's what, that's what Jesus responds to. He speaks to the great need that the disciples all have at this particular point in their lives and what they need for the rest of their earthly ministry. He's going to instruct them about the God who answers prayer. Now, he does this, first of all, with a command. He says to Peter, when Peter's amazed, he says, all of them, have faith in God. Now, if you happen to look at what this is in, in the Greek, it's a command. Have faith in God. 
But commands can be given to us which point to different kinds of experiences. Let me illustrate this from my own boyhood. Um, as a kid, my dad often commanded me to mow the lawn. Go cut the grass. He had to command me because I never wanted to cut the grass. Mowing the lawn was against my nature for one basic reason. I was allergic to work. I had this moral allergy to work, which is called laziness. But then, there might be this very rare occasion when my dad might see that I was actually very, very tired from cutting the grass or something else, and he would give a different command. Come inside. Take a nap. And that command I would find delightful. Honestly, during my growth spurt years, I loved taking naps. Naps were truly good for me. Naps were in accordance with my nature very, very well. Now, what I want us to see is that the command that, that Jesus gives here to have faith in God is this second kind of command. It is a command that is designed to rescue us from the hard and toilsome and burdened work of living and working in this very difficult world. We often go through life as if the whole burden of this world is really left up to our own strength. Julie and I this week were talking about how often we bare-knuckle things in terms of our approach to life. And, and, and this command is to find rest. It's a command to, to, to stop relying upon your own strength and efforts. It's a command to find rest in trusting and entrusting yourself to God. That returns us to the emphasis we looked at a few weeks ago when we were reading Mark chapter 10, verse 52, in the story of blind Bartimaeus, when Jesus said to Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well. We pointed out that Jesus was giving an abbreviation when he said that, because what Jesus meant was, your faith in God has made you well. Blind Bartimaeus' faith wasn't some kind of inside human believing, welling up inside of him, some kind of inward power that he tapped in to believe great and wonderful things. It, it wasn't part of his mind and emotions in that way. His faith was exercised as a trust in the power and goodness of God. And that's what Jesus is commanding, to have a genuine trust in God, in His mercy, in His care, in His power, in His concern for what concerns us. Jesus is commanding us to find the blessing that comes from trusting God and trusting in the God who really does pay attention to us, who really does care for us with an infinite wisdom and love. A God whose care is designed toward us, toward what is truly our, our, our greatest and highest good. The greatest good that you and I can ever do for ourselves, 
is to trust in God. To have faith in God in this way. To trust in Him. And then Jesus takes that teaching further. The more deeply we trust God, the more amazed we will be at what God will do. Verse 23, 24, let's read these again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, a lot of us understand that these two verses together are probably the most abused verses in the New Testament. There's this thing that's been out there for a long time called the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it gospel, the idea that God gives you this license to ask for anything, just believe it strongly enough and it's going to be yours. So we need to look at these two verses carefully. Uh, Jesus is beginning with a figure of speech. This idea of commanding a mountain to move by believing without any doubt in one's heart. Now, the figure of speech, this mountain moving phrase, wasn't original with Jesus. That in itself ought to make us recognize that if it wasn't original with Jesus, it was actually original with somebody else, and it was a common thing in the Jewish culture. It's what the rabbis had used as a symbol and metaphor for strong faith in God. It's also a compounded figure of speech because the moving of the mountain is a hyperbole, a figure of speech that expresses the truth by its exaggeration. So the mountain refers to something big, something strong, something that generally is immovable. So the rabbis had taught that the deepest kind of faith in God is a big faith in God, a large faith in God, an immovable faith in God, a faith in God that is so immovable it's like a huge rock, a mountain that can't be moved. That's what they meant by it. Paul uses this metaphor. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, if I have all faith, now the idea of all faith there means the totality of faith, the deepest kind of faith, the maximal kind of faith. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Figure of speech. The point of the figure of speech is this. If there's mountain-sized faith, there's faith that isn't mountain-sized, right? So we can have genuine trust in God. But that trust in God can grow. And that trust in God can grow deeper and stronger and bigger as we get to know God more deeply and more faithfully. 
And what Jesus also mentions here is the doubt factor. Here's the most basic spiritual reality that Jesus is pointing out in terms of the doubt factor. Trusting in God is affected by your doubts. Now, the nature of doubt is this. It's to be suspicious or it's not to trust in something entirely or it's to worry that something isn't totally right about this. Whatever you might be doing or wanting to do, it it winds up in being a lack of certainty. Doubt is a feeling of uncertainty. It's a lack of conviction about something. James describes the doubt factor, James chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, when he says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. An exact example of what Jesus was teaching. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's tossed and driven by the wind. For any person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. Such a person who doubts, who lacks convictions, he must not believe he's going to get the thing that he wants if, in fact, he's doubting rather than asking and trusting in faith. So what Jesus is saying is this. The killer of our trust in God is doubt. What short-circuits the answers to our prayers is a lack of trust in God and what God is willing to do. Yet, I want you to think a little more deeply about this doubt factor because there are actually two kinds of doubt. There's good doubt and there's bad doubt. But they affect your relationship with God because both good doubt and bad doubt are both about a lack of certainty, a lack of conviction. Good doubt is when you're not sure that what you're really asking of God is kosher. You're not sure that what you're asking of God is really good or godly or according to the righteousness of the kingdom of God. Because remember, Jesus taught us to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to us. About 25 years ago, I got fascinated with the idea that somebody has to win the $5 million Reader's Digest sweepstakes. And I thought, why can't I ask God that it be me? Why not? So I prayed that I would win it. But almost immediately, and, and, and I actually, sad to say, had a long season of doing this, because remember these sweepstakes, you have to keep sending stuff in, right? And I kept responding and sending stuff in and responding and sending stuff in. My wife was looking at me with that, you're a pathetic person. (laughs) I prayed to win, and I had all these reasons why winning would be a good thing. But here is what ultimately stood in the way. I asked myself, where in the Bible do we find that God finances the work of his kingdom by sweepstakes and lotteries? Sweepstakes and lotteries always generate greed. And what did Paul teach about this this lusting after the winning of a sweepstake? What did Paul teach about that? 
So finally, I had to find myself in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9 through 12. But those who desire to be rich, 5 million would put me in that category, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, as for you, Pastor Martin, O man of God, if you hope to be a man of God, if you want to stay a man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. And I realized I had been praying for a season more ardently, more strongly for winning the sweepstakes than I had been praying for righteousness or godliness or faith or love or steadfast or gentleness or for fighting the good fight of the faith. You see, biblical truth generated doubt about the rightness of asking this of God. This was absolutely good doubt. But there's bad doubt. That's what Jesus is concerned about. That's what he refers to in this passage. It's when we doubt the character of God in some way, when we doubt the trustworthiness of God and his word. If we don't think that we ourselves really matter to God, that's going to kill our prayer life. Because it's going to be doubt that God really loves and cares for us. The great truth that that Jesus is teaching us here is to have faith in God. Trust God. Trust Him. Believe in His character. Believe in His love. Believe in His grace. Believe in His mercy. Know that He cares for His own. So that with Paul, you're able to say, with great confidence, without doubt, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably beyond all that we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. The final point, and we have to quickly move through this. Verse 25, Jesus also teaches the matter of forgiveness toward others. Jesus teaches that the mercy of forgiveness toward us shows up in the mercy of forgiveness toward others. If we expect to receive mercy from God, others must be able to expect mercy from us. This is what Jesus taught his disciples, Luke chapter 6, 35-36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So Jesus said, when you pray, forgive others their trespasses against you. So the Father likewise will be forgiving of you. Summing up. Jesus reveals God. Jesus is in the act of judgment. But his judgment only falls upon those who have unrepentant hearts. 
Jesus does amazing things. We should always be most amazed that the blood of Christ will never, ever lose its saving power. And finally, Jesus answers prayer. The more we trust him, the more we will see his grace in those things which matter most in our lives. And in Christ, we will see how God is for us, the wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you, Jesus, that you reveal to us our Heavenly Father. So, Lord, work in us always repentant hearts. Work in us great amazement at all of your doings. And work in us such great trusting of you that we would see great prayers answered in our lives ahead. O Lord Jesus, our wonderful, merciful Savior. Amen.